kidding. Uh, so Luke chapter 20, uh, we'll be there, verse 41, and we'll, we'll see what we get through here. If you've been with us for a while, we've been going through the book of Luke. We've actually started a couple years ago, just kind of doing sections and taking breaks. Uh, but we started back up again, and we're going to finish it through the rest of this year. And Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's making his way to the cross. He's determined to go to the cross. And as he's come in, there have been many religious opponents that have come and questioned him. He's been faced, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the Herodians, and the Sadducees have all come to Jesus, all opposing Jesus, all questioning Jesus. They have questioned his authority. They've tried to question him about his view regarding taxes to Caesar. They've tried to stump him regarding the resurrection. Um, None of these religious leaders like Jesus. Now, the reason they don't like him is because he's outside the box that they want. They have their expectations, their box, of what they want a Messiah to do for them. And Jesus is not complying with their expectations, and therefore they desire to reject him. Um, and to have him arrested. And so now in our text, Jesus is going to turn the tables a little bit. He's going to bring a question to them. And in doing so, he's going to expose the fact that these religious leaders who talk as though they have sight are actually blind. They do not actually understand the scriptures. They do not actually know God. They do not actually have a correct understanding of the Messiah. And then he's going to lead us into what it looks like to have a correct understanding of the Messiah. And so as we do here, we stand when we read the Bible. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We do so uh, because we believe God's word comes with his full authority. And uh, we do so to honor our Lord and Father. So we're going to start in chapter 20, verse 41, uh, and we are going to go through verse 4 of chapter 21. And this is Jesus speaking. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And, the hearing, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like, to walk, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let's pray. Father, give us wisdom as we're in your word today. God, I pray for whatever, whatever expectations whatever presuppositions we bring when we read the Bible, God, help us just to, to lay those down. Help us to read the word as you have written it. Help us to understand the context as you have written it. Help us to see the truth that you have placed in it. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. May your spirit be upon us. Lord, I pray, bring conviction where we need conviction. Bring encouragement where we need that. Bring correction where we need that. God, teach us. Help us to understand why truly your son came as 100% God, as 100% man, that he might die on the cross for us. In your name, Jesus, amen. 
You all may be seated. Uh, so we're going to begin uh, by just giving a little context. Who are the scribes? Uh, most likely, when it says in verse 41, but he said to them, he's talking to the scribes. Now, just previously, he addressed the Sadducees. The Sadducees said, remember, why are they sad? Because they don't believe in the They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. If that helps you, that's great. Um, But at the very end, after Jesus proved that the Bible teaches a resurrection, in verse 39 it says, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. So all of a sudden, the scribes who have never liked Jesus are now affirming Jesus. So it appears now he's addressing them. And then in verse 46, he will specifically say, Beware of the scribes. So it appears that that's most likely who we are talking to. Um, It doesn't change really the context if it's not exactly them, uh, but the scribes will represent all the religious leaders. Um, They are the religious experts. They are the teachers of the law, the legal experts. If anyone has a question regarding the scriptures, about who God is, about a legal matter, they go to the scribes because the scribes are the final say. They're the ones who know everything. And what they say is truth. At least that was how it was viewed. And what Jesus is now going to do is expose that they don't actually have a correct understanding of the scriptures and thus of the Messiah. And so in this first section, we kind of have three scenes. Uh, First is Jesus is going to teach on the Messiah. He's going to give a passage. That's where he quotes from the Psalms. Then he's going to warn the disciples about the scribes. That's scene two. And scene three, he's going to highlight the faith of the poor widow. And so we'll make our way to the first scene. And here we're going to see a wrong view of the Messiah leads to a wrong understanding for the Messiah. So if you have a wrong understanding of the Messiah, we don't know why he came. We'll have a wrong understanding for his purpose. So if you look at verse 41... Jesus says, how can they, most likely the scribes, say that the Christ is David's son? Now, it's common knowledge that the Messiah was to come from the line of David. Uh, The Old Testament clearly teaches this. I'll just give a couple examples. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God is speaking to David, and he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of of his kingdom forever. From the line of David, we have this Davidic king that we're waiting for. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. And so a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So from Jesse, from David, there will come this shoot. Um, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Old Testament, and we could look at a hundred other passages, all speak of there's a king who's going to come from the line of David. Now, the problem, according to um, Israel thought, contemporary thought, first century thought, is that sons are never greater than their fathers. So to go back, uh, in the Old Testament, Abraham is the father of God's people. Isaac, his son, was not greater than Abraham. Jacob, who's Isaac's son, was not greater than Isaac, and so forth. And so um, 
David is the great Old Testament king. It's under his rule that God raised up Israel to be the powerful nation that conquered all other nations, that then ushered in the time of peace, that Solomon then became the king and reigned. And when you go to 2 Kings and you read about Solomon's reign, you see he had peace on every side and he had abundance and abundance of riches. That all came because of what happened through David. And so the expectation is there's going to be one like David. And so this king that's going to come will also, like David, make Israel into a powerful nation who will conquer the enemy nations, Rome, who right now they're enslaved to, and free them and make them the powerful nation that they once were. See, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, all of these religious leaders, they want power, prestige, and position. And because that is their view of the Messiah, that is what they're looking for, which is why they reject Jesus. Remember, how did Jesus come into Jerusalem? Was it on a big horse, a stallion? It's on a donkey. Did he have an army? No, he had a bunch of misfits. Was he surrounded by, by wealth and riches? No, pretty much by poverty and loneliness. And so... The scribes, the religious leaders, they look at Jesus and they say, well, he's nothing like what we want. I mean, David did this. Surely this is what his great son will do also. And so Jesus asked them a question to show that they have an incomplete understanding of who the Messiah truly is. Um, and so we see this question in verse 42. And he's going to quote Psalm 110. And I would love to spend like a whole like just time looking at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted um, psalm in the, in the New Testament. Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews, will all use it, speaking about the Messiah, speaking about what he has come to do. Rabbis in the first century would write on Psalm 10, speaking about what it would say about the Messiah. In the psalm, we learn that Jesus will be a priestly king who will reign forever. Now, just so you know, in Old Testament, uh, the priest and the king is never the same person. They're never the same person. There was one priest king that we see in the Old Testament. Do you remember his name? Starts with an M. It's really long and sounds really weird. Melchizedek, right? Which nobody knows who this guy is because he appears out of nowhere. And we really don't read about him until we get to Hebrews again. And we're going, well, who is this guy? Well, that's a whole sermon that we could spend. But he's a priest king. He's this amazing priest king in the Old Testament that we're told in Hebrews seems to reign forever. And what he is, he's a picture of Jesus who's going to come as the ultimate priest king, who's the priest and the king who will lead his people forever. So we learn that in Psalm 110 and so much more. But for Jesus' purpose, he's only going to quote verse 1 in Psalm 110. And this is what he says. The Lord said to my Lord, um, now we stop there, because there's a lot right there. This is David writing this psalm. When you see the word Lord, in all capitals, that means Yahweh. So that's God's covenant name. That's referring to God. You could say referring to the Father, referring to the full triune God. And when we read the word Lord with lowercase o-r-d, uh, that's often Adonai. And that refers to master that also is used to refer to God in the Old Testament. And so really what David is saying here is he's saying, um, the Lord said to my God. So Yahweh has said to God. And 
then we have David sitting here. And the next question, if you look down at verse 44, David is getting to it, or Jesus is getting to his point. David thus calls the Messiah Lord, God, Sovereign, Master. So how is he a son? You see, the, you see what he's done? You guys say he's his David's son. That's all you think of him. All you think of the Messiah is David's son. But how is it that David says, listening to the Father, the Lord said to my God? How did that take place? How is the Messiah his son, but also his God? That's the point that, David, that Jesus is bringing in. And that's what the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders do not understand. And if you notice, there's no answer that's given. Matthew and Mark both record this teaching. There's no answer given there either. The point is, they don't know. There's no answer that they can give. You see, Jesus is not only the son of David, but he's David's Lord. He's the very son of God. The Messiah, this means that he's not living in the shadow of the great King David. Jesus coming, the Messiah coming, he's not simply going to restore Israel to its former glory under David's reign, which that's exactly what the religious leaders want, because that's what they think the Bible is teaching. Have you ever met those people that seem to live in the past? And like all the glory days were in the past? If you were in our marriage class, we actually like talked about this uh, this last week. When they start talking about their past, their eyes light up. You know, they kind of get a smile on their face. Maybe it's about their glory days in high school football or college or just they look in the past and there's always this thing in the past that that's what they look forward to and that's what brightens them up. And then when they look at the future or they look at the present, how do they speak about it? Angry, bitter, pessimistic. Um, you ever met those people? They're always looking towards the past. As Christians, there's many Christians in America that do this. What's one of the things that many Christians in America will say? We just want to go back to the religious roots. We want to go back to the way we were founded. We want to go back in time. If only we could go backwards, then we would have really a good nation. But is our hope to really go back in the past? Is that really where the hope is? Is that where Israel's hope should be in the first century? That they go back a thousand years prior you see that the religious leaders have it mixed up. They look at the present as the shadow and the past as the reality. But what we read in Scripture, especially Hebrews, it talks about the Old Testament is the shadow leading towards the reality which is discovered in Jesus Christ. Meaning the great nation that we have of Israel in the Old Testament is not about Israel once again becoming a great nation here on earth, but it looks forward to the eternal kingdom of God that will one day reign on the new heavens and new earth. We're not looking just for a better earthly kingdom. We're looking for a better earth. A kingdom that will reign forever. A king which will reign forever in which we read in Revelation chapter 3 that we who believe in Jesus will reign with him on his throne with the Father forever. That's where we're looking. We're not looking to the past for the hope. We don't want to return that way. We look to Jesus who we then know is coming again for the purpose of taking all who have believed, with him, believed in him to live in the new heavens and new earth. So yes, 
The Messiah is a man. Yes, he comes from the line of David, but he's also much greater than David. He's not lesser. Like the common thought, sons are always lesser than the fathers. No, no. This son of David will be much greater than David. And he will bring in a much greater kingdom than David. Now, why is this important? Because if we only think of Jesus, if we only think of the Messiah like a man, then we will be just like the Pharisees and we'll think that he's just come to make life a little bit better. That's the trap. It's when we understand that Jesus is the Son of God, we understand why he's come as the Messiah. See, according to Scripture, if we go to the Old Testament or the New Testament, we see that all men are sinful. In fact, because of Genesis 3, where we see that sin comes in, all men, we're all born sinful. In fact, in Isaiah 53, it says we are conceived in sin, which means we're not born innocent, and then we do something bad, and then we become sinful. We are born sinful. That's why you don't ever have to teach your toddlers how not to share, right? Like, there's some things you don't have to teach them. They're naturally good at not sharing. They're naturally good at hitting their brother and sister, right? Like, you don't have to teach that. We're sinful. All of that comes natural. So in the Old Testament, we see that because we're sinful, God institutes a sacrificial system. Now, the sacrificial system is given as a way of atoning for our sins, bringing about forgiveness. We'd sacrifice, or they would sacrifice, sheep and bulls and goats. But the problem is, can a sheep, can a bull, can a goat properly stand in your place and my place and atone for our sins? Is it a proper substitute? No. And they were never meant to be. Again, the Old Testament is about looking forward to Jesus. So all of these imperfect sacrifices were about looking forward to the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so the idea was, as we're making all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's bloody, it's incredibly bloody, that one day these sacrifices would come to an end because there would be a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, 4 says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins. What we need is someone to stand in our place. But there's a problem. We're all sinful, right? Who can stand in our place? Who is worthy to atone for our sins? The reason hell is eternal is because it would take an eternity for us to absorb God's wrath just against our sins. Which means we can never absorb God's wrath because it will be for eternity, which is why we needed a Messiah to come to stand in our place. One who is perfect, one who can perfectly stand as our substitute in our place, but yet, how can he absorb God's wrath? How is it that he will be able to propitiate, remember the word, wrath absorb, how can he absorb God's wrath for us so that we can actually be forgiven and have real peace with God. Well, if he comes only as a man, he can't do it. But if he comes as the God-man, this is where it's important that we understand Jesus is not just man. Yes, he's from the line of David, but yes, he's also David's God. So he's the 100% man, 100% God. We call this the, the hypostatic union, which that's a whole other conversation, getting into that. But what we see is that Jesus is God and he's man, so he is the proper substitute. He stands in your place and my place, and for everyone who believes in him, that he would absorb God's wrath for you and for me so that his wrath would be fully poured out on, on the cross, sins paid for, he raises three days later, proving 
that he paid the penalty of sin, proving that we who believe in him will not only be forgiven, but raised just as he, as he has. And that is our Messiah. That's the gospel. That's what we, what we love preaching about. That's what we share about. That's what Peggy and Donna go share about. That's what we need to go share in Lebanon. That's what needs to be shared in every part of this world is that there is a God who has sent his son as man, as God, to die on the cross so we can actually have forgiveness of sins. Because if he's no different than us, then there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, the problem is the scribes did not see themselves as sinners under God's wrath. I mean, they saw themselves as, as righteous people, as morally good people. And that's dangerous for us, too, because if we see ourselves as morally just good people, upstanding people, righteous people, then what do I need a Messiah for? And that's why they did not believe they needed a Messiah. What they wanted was someone to give them what they deserved because they were righteous, or at least better than other people, because they did keep the law better than other people because they did view themselves as God's people what they needed was not someone to save them and give them forgiveness and give them a new life what they needed was someone to give them a boost was someone to make it better was someone to put a step stool down for them that they can just have the things that they want what they wanted was power prestige and position um, what you desire reveals what kind of messiah you want you know that? Like what you desire reveals what kind of Messiah you want. If we don't understand that we're sinful under the judgment of God, then we don't need the Messiah of the Bible. Like we gotta get there. If we don't see that, I don't need Jesus. At least not the way the Bible speaks about him. If our number one desire is our family, and we just love being with our family, then what we want our Messiah to give us is good health maybe long life, maybe good relationships with our family. That, that will be our Messiah. If our number one desire is to be married and have a good life, then your Messiah will be your spouse, and you will expect him to satisfy you in every single way, which if you're in our marriage class, actually last week he said that's a very bad position to be in. If our number one desire is to make a lot of money, then our Messiah will be the fact that we will get promotion after promotion after promotion and we'll work our way up the corporate ladder. If our desire is that we are able to control things, then we will want everyone to recognize us and everyone to submit to us. What you desire reveals what kind of Messiah you want, reveals what you need. The problem is man-made Messiahs offer too little. And they often can't deliver on what they promise on. Scripture tells us his life is temporary. See, man-made messiahs, um, like what the Pharisees want, they want just a, a better nation, a more powerful kingdom. Um, that's going to be for their benefit right now. That's where their focus is. It's on life right now. But that's too shallow. Because what does Scripture tell us about this life, about this earth? is that one day it's coming to an end. And for one, we know how fragile life is, right? I mean, while we're all here, we, we all, we honestly, we can't promise that we'll all make it home safely, right? I mean, that's not like what we want to necessarily think about, but honestly, we're not in control of that. If a drunk driver comes, we can be hit, even on the way home from church today. Like, we are not actually in control as much as we often think that we are. And so if, if our hope is everything in this life, 
But we're not in control of this life, and this life is going to pass away. And the Bible speaks about it one day being rolled up and kind of burned up in a sense. As Jesus brings about the new heavens and new earth, where if we believed in him, we'll live there with him forever in perfect joy and perfect peace and perfect blessing for all of eternity. Or if we've not believed in him, we will suffer under his judgment forever. And so why, why would we narrowly focus on this trivial little time on earth and say, I want all the things I want now? When God is saying, I've come to give you something so much more. Not that we wouldn't have any good times now, because I do believe as Christians, we truly experience joy now. But God is for our joy, but he's for our eternal joy, our ultimate joy, which will be found in him, with him, forever. It's when we have that kind of understanding that then we begin sending people to Poland, when we begin sending people to Lebanon. Because we understand that, look, life is not about us just building up our Roth IRAs and having whatever retirement that we want, but it's about using the time we have to direct people to Jesus, that they also would understand who he is, that together we would be with him for all of eternity because he has given his son that we could have life. And so this is what Jesus is exposing here. He's like, you have a man-made Messiah, and it's not correct. And now he's going to go to scene two, the warning to not be like the scribes. And what we're going to see here is our lifestyle reveals our understanding of the Messiah. Our lifestyle reveals our understanding of the Messiah. He's going to tell the, the disciples, do not be like the scribes. He's going to give us five descriptions of them. So I'll just kind of, I just wrote it out in the things that they love. But if you look at verses 45 and 47, this is what you see. They love to be seen in fancy clothing. They love to be recognized in public. They love to be honored at feasts and in the synagogue. They love to take advantage of poor widows. They love to be seen giving long prayers. Now, four and five, they love to be taken advantage. They love to take advantage of poor widows. Might be, they say, hey, if you give us your money, we will say these really long, lengthy prayers. That might be how that's supposed to be understood. So those could be combined or those might not be. Um, but regardless, what we see is that the scribes are all about their power, their position, and their prestige now. They want people to recognize them. They want the good life now. And therefore... They will do whatever it takes, even if it means taking advantage of people, the poorest of the people, the widows, to do so. And notice in the last line in verse 47, they will receive the greater condemnation. So here's the real warning. According to Scripture, there seems to be different degrees of judgment. Now, we have to be careful here because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detailed information what this looks like. But let me just read a few passages. These will be up here. And just, just read through these. Just think about what they say. Number one, Matthew 10, 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the judgment, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah that, than for that town, the town that Jesus had just preached to. I think it's Capernaum. Matthew eleven twenty to 22. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Old Testament, they would have repented long ago and sat cloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now this one's maybe a little more clear. Luke 12, 47 and 48. 
And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will, not, or will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from whom to much was entrusted much, they will demand the more. You can kind of begin seeing those who have greater knowledge, greater understanding are punished more severely. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So the idea is, if there's judgment for those who have rejected God in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant with the law and the sacrifices, how much more, now that Jesus has come and made it clear who he is, what the uh, redemption plan of God is, how much more will they be judged for rejecting God? So do you see there's this level of, it seems like there's this increased judgment for those who have greater understanding. And so the disciples are being warned. Look at these scribes. They know a lot. They understand the scriptures a lot, but they've missed it. They will receive a great judgment. And the disciples have been with Jesus a long time. They're watching Jesus. They've learned from Jesus. And if they turn from Jesus, they will not receive a light judgment. They know exactly who Jesus is. They will receive a, a greater judgment. Now, this is where we have to be careful here because we don't read left to right, top to bottom, turn the page, check the box, and we're done. If we do that, we miss the truths of scriptures. So what we want to do is say there's a warning here given to the disciples. How does this apply to me? What's the point here? Well, what we see is that those who have greater knowledge will be judged more severely. Well, what we know here in America is that we have a lot of Bibles in our houses. What we know here in America is there's a lot of people who sit in church buildings every single week. There's a lot of people who have sat and heard many, many sermons for decades. And yet there's a lot of people who have been a part of churches and are not actually a part of the church. They have not actually believed in Jesus. They go through routine. They look morally good. But they have not actually trusted in Jesus to forgive them of their sins. According to Scripture, there's a great judgment that awaits them. There's a great judgment that awaits um, there are people in churches today all across America that this is true and what's scary is if we, we really get practical and we, we start applying the Bible we would have to say that could be true of someone here today and we have to take that warning and so as we read this we don't just simply go well I know Jesus and I just move on but we have to pause and say do I truly understand who the Messiah is? Do I, do I think he's just a man like me to make my life a little better, to give me a boost? Or do I truly understand he, he's the God-man who has come and died in my place and that only by faith in him there's, there's forgiveness of sins? And if I trust in anyone else or anything else, then I do not know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Do we know this? So I... I want to urge you, this is, this is one of those times, just, we want to take time and just, God, have I truly believed in you? 
And I want you to just consider that as we go through this message, as we go into communion in a few moments. Have you truly repented? Do you know that you are a sinner? Not just cognitively. Yes, okay, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. I know I mess up. No. Do you know that you, at every breath of your life, offend God? Because you are born sinful. And therefore, you deserve judgment for every single day for all of eternity. Unless we believe in Jesus Christ. Until we know that, there's a warning that's given to us. So I urge you just to consider where you're at. Now, this isn't supposed to be a mystery either. God's not sitting here going, oh, there's some of them who think they know me, but they really don't. Oh, I'm going to get them. He's not sneaky like that. Okay, so he's not trying to make this like a trick question. If you go to 1 John, 1 John's all about that you would know. I write that you would know. I write that you would know. He's like, I want you to know that you're actually saved. So he tells us all these ways that we can know that we're actually saved. So it's not to be a trick. It's just, do I actually believe in Jesus? Have I confessed my sins? And I just urge you, do not trust in the fact that you've gone to church for decades. Do not trust the fact that because you're in here, you're a Christian. That's like you go in your garage in your car. It just, it's not the same, Right? Location doesn't matter. It matters about your heart condition. And so I urge you just to consider, have you trusted in Jesus? We'll go to the third scene. We need to pick up pace a little bit. Poor widow. What we see here is the one who gives all to God is the one who understands their need for the true Messiah. The scribes, by their lifestyle, reveal they do not need Jesus, right? Clearly that's the point. Now we have a poor widow. Well, we just talked about poor widows in verse 47. What did we learn? Scribes devour poor widows. They're the lowliest of the people. They're the ones that get taken advantage of. Now we're highlighting a poor widow, most likely taken advantage of by the scribes. She's probably one of these very people. Rich people come, put their money in the offering boxes. Jesus doesn't really say anything about them, but the poor widow comes. She places two copper coins. Now, just so you know, a copper coin, or a denarius is a day's, is a day's wage. A copper coin is one one twenty-eighth of a denarius. She puts in what's equivalent to the lint in your pocket right now. It's worthless. It really doesn't matter. I would need 128 of these things to say that I did a good job today at work. Like, it's nothing. And that's what she places. And so Jesus then says, verse 3, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Here's the point. She knows she's a sinner. She's not about power, prestige, position. That's not what the Messiah has come to give her. That's not what she wants. What she wants is forgiveness. What she needs is a new life. She needs a God who will give everything for her out of grace and mercy because she has absolute nothing. Therefore, she simply gives all to God. Not to earn, not to prove why she should be saved, but to simply say, I need God. I trust in God. This is what Jesus has come to do. To die on a cross that we could simply open up our arms and say, that's what I need. I need forgiveness because I'm a sinner. A couple things to point out with her. Number one, you don't have to know everything in the Bible to be saved. Notice, the scribes know everything. She probably has a very limited knowledge of the Bible. The scribes have missed it. She has not. 
do not think that you just simply have to have master's degree or have massive portions of the Bible memorized. It's great to know those things. Those are great things, but those are not things that save us. So if you're here today and you're just saying, look, I still have a lot of questions. Great, I do too. Like we all have questions about God and about the Bible and about things on degrees of punishment and degrees of blessing. That brings up tons of questions, right? Yes. In fact, you can text in those questions. I'll ignore them today because we don't have time, but I'll text you back later. Um, but what we see is that there is clear teaching. There is clear teaching in the Bible that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to die for us so that we who believe in him would be saved. There are unclear things too, like degrees of judgment. We don't have to have all the answers to see clearly who God is. Those other answers will sometime come in time or come in eternity. But don't think that you have to know everything. Number two, you don't have to be rich and wealthy to be worthy of the kingdom either. And that's what's great about the gospel. You have the poor widow and you have the rich person. And both of them come and they stand equal before God, needing God's grace. There's not some people who are more worthy and there's not people who are less worthy. We all stand on equal ground. We are sinful and needing a Savior. In fact, if we look at Scripture, what we could say, and what Scripture says, is that money oftentimes blinds us of our need for Jesus. Money's not necessarily bad. It's great to have money. Use it for many good things. But it can blind us for our need for Jesus. And we see just how she gives Jesus says that they all contributed, the scribes, out of their abundance, meaning they gave and it didn't affect them at all. Like, so that's something for us to consider. If we give and it doesn't affect our budget, like if you can give money and then you can still go buy whatever you want, it probably doesn't affect you. You're giving out of your abundance. That's what that means. If it doesn't affect you. But here we see, um, but she gives out of her poverty, meaning when she has nothing, she still gives, and she gives extravagantly. Now, this isn't like now where we manipulate, and we say, okay, so now we're going to pass the offering buckets in a few moments, and let's see if you actually got the lesson. Because the real message is not necessarily give. This story fits inside the larger context of, do I understand who the Messiah is? The Messiah is the God-man, and when I understand that, and that he has died on the cross for me, that I would receive forgiveness of sins, what would I ever hold back from him? So see, the, the message isn't on giving, it's upon how we live before our God. And when we understand that God has given us everything so that we could have everything in Him, now we are free to give all the things that we have. It's only the gospel that frees us from power, prestige, and position. It's the gospel that frees us from that. So that no longer do we go, do I have much, do I have little, but it's God has given all, how can I not also give? That's what we learn here. So we're going to move into the time of communion. And as we do so, what we're going to look at is, is the bread that represents the body of Christ. He came as man. He had to be our substitute. And then we have the blood, which represents the fact that he died. And only because he's the God-man does his blood provide actually the atonement, the forgiveness of sin that we need. And so I just want to pray, and I just want to spend just a moment in prayer here. And what I, I just ask that you would do is simply confess any sin that you need to, but also just pray and understand, have you truly believed in the true Jesus of the Bible? Or have you made up a, a man-made Messiah? 
Have you trusted in the the true God of the Bible? So let me pray, and then we're going to go into that. And as I pray, I just encourage you to pray along with me. Father, we know that Jesus is not just a mere man. We know that he's not. Your scripture tells us he's not. Your scripture tells us he comes as the God-man, as the true Messiah, because we need real forgiveness of sins. And we know that no amount of good works, no amount of wealth, no amount of riches, no amount of power, no amount of position will make us worthy to stand before you. Only the blood of Jesus does. Only the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we as a church would know that. And I pray right now that if there is anyone here who doesn't know that for sure, who's not sure that they've actually trusted in the Jesus of the Bible, but maybe they're here and they've trusted in some man-made, distorted view of you. Lord, I pray just bring conviction, bring understanding, bring clarity, bring repentance. And God, if there's anyone here who maybe we just look and we know that we're Christians, but over the last weeks, months, year, we realize that we've been distracted by maybe wealth and power and position and prestige. Maybe we've been acting as though we want some other type of Messiah. Lord, I pray, bring us to repentance. God, may we, may we be like this poor widow who accurately sees that she's a sinner in need of your grace. And that we would fall before you, willing to give everything, because we see that you have given your son. You have held nothing back from us. And therefore, how could we ever hold anything back from you? Lord, we love you. In your name, Jesus, amen. I'm going to ask the men to come forward. As this is passed out to remind us again, the bread represents the body of Christ, which means he comes as man, as our perfect substitute. No goats, no bulls, no sheep. As a perfect substitute. The blood represents, he didn't just get hurt, but he died. He died as the God-man, so there would be true forgiveness of sins for all who believe in him.